Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. On this episode, uh, we're going to be talking about the philosophy of school choice and the history of school choice in Arizona. We're in a little bit of a weird place, I think, because here in Arizona, just politically, because we have... You know, Republicans pushing the sort of the extreme edges of, of school choice, the patchwork of, of laws like uh, voucher expansions, uh, while at the same time, you know, most ordinary people that I talk to don't even fully understand how charter schools work, <laughs> and, and, and Democrats aren't even fully on board with the existence of, uh, of charter schools and, and how there's different regulations on charters and then districts. So, um, so that's the, that's the topic today. And let's get started with just where it started. And before there was, before there was even school choice in the beginning, you know, there was, there was no school choice, right? And this is uh, up until the, what, early nineties, uh, <clears throat> anywhere you live and, you know, people that are new to Arizona or that are younger might not even remember this, but you had to live you, wherever you lived you, you were required to go to the public district school in your area. Right? Correct. There, there, there were firm uh, district boundaries. It was all district schools. There were firm district boundaries. And in, within those districts, there were boundaries for each individual school. And you were required to attend the school uh, within uh, whom's... Uh, attendance boundary, you happen to reside. And what was the reason for that? Was it that you had to, is it because the taxpayer money within the, within the boundaries would be used for those schools or what was, why have those, why, why wasn't it, what was the purpose for those strict, the strict laws that had zero school choice for, for moving, just maybe going to a district school in a different side of town or something? I think it was more administrative efficiency than anything else. It, it was well before um, there was the high anxiety about the quality of education that was taking place in public schools, um, before there became uh, culture war issues uh, related to um, what schools were offering. So uh, when I was growing up, um, schools just weren't that controversial, and and I suspect I don't know, but I suspect it was just administrative efficiency, uh, and uh, oftentimes uh, here in Arizona and in other states, uh, it was local property taxes that supported the schools. Uh, so you uh, went to the school that your property taxes were supporting, and it was just considered another political subdivision. And so the only place to have the only way you could choose your school is by living or moving into the area that you wanted to to go to school there, or go or, to a or private pay, school. Yeah, or pay for for private school, pr- pretty much. And that was the um, and that was the rationale or the logic behind the push to open up. Um, did that happen at the same time? Opening up district boundaries and um, legalizing or allowing charter schools was that the same law, or was that were those different I, components? I don't know for sure, but they occurred pretty close in time. 
Um, so if they weren't directly connected, uh, they were closely associated in time. And the rationale behind it, um, <clears throat> where did that come from? Like the, like the, like the, the rationale behind, so charter schools are <clears throat> um, publicly funded, privately operated entities. And, <clears throat> and um, where did the, where was the brains or the intellectual, where did the ideas come from which, which created uh, our charter school laws here in Arizona? In significant part from uh, Milton Friedman. Um, certainly the, the voucher idea uh, was originally um, Friedman's, or at least he was the most prominent uh, proponent of it that, that caused it to, gra- to gain some intellectual uh, traction. Uh, but there were sort of two different motivations that came together. Uh, one motivation was centered on uh, the parents and the family, and simply saying that uh, parents should have a say in the educational environment uh, that their uh, student uh, experiences. Uh, And one of the first benefits that manifested itself from the charter school uh, movement uh, was a a large increase in parental satisfaction with the schools that their students uh, attended. Uh, the other was to improve academic achievement uh, with the belief that if you uh, had money following students, uh, the schools would have to compete on the quality of education in order to get the funding that they needed to operate their institutions. And so that was more of a broader societal uh, view. So you had kind of the family concern with the parents and their ability to make meaningful choices about the education of their kids. And then you had, gee, we need to do something to improve educational attainment generally. Uh, competing for students would be a way to induce that. What <clears throat> Another <clears throat> explanation or rationale that I've, I've gone back and read a little bit of, of news articles back from, the, from those 90s uh, debates, it was like, I think, 95 or 94 um, that the that the charter school law was <clears throat> was passed here in Arizona, and one of the one of the rationales that I've that I saw discussed was that teachers could, you know, start innovate. The idea of innovation um, that you know if you if you allowed for charter schools, teachers would be able to you know separate from the you know the system, the district school system innovate, create something new that was directly motivated and, and, and the idea of classroom teachers and that it would be easy for them to start a school, operate the way they wanted to, and that would be better, maybe, and they would have the opportunity to create an institution that was, that was better, you know, in terms of the education than, than other ways. Um, <clears throat> fast forward to 2022, I don't know. I think there are there are some schools that were started by teachers, but I don't. I don't. See, what I mostly see now is that you know nonprofits and and chain, charter chains have come to dominate the the market in in charter schools, and it's just you know as someone that you know I'm, I've been teaching for a while, and the idea of starting my own school 
it's like it's almost like not an option because it seems like there's so many you know so many hurdles so much money that would need to to be made and so i'm wondering is that a component and, and you know there's a lot of charter schools to choose from right now but they're mostly the same in terms of in not not the same i guess i'm saying they're different in terms of the curriculum there may be values and approaches but i'm talking about like i don't know are are we seeing the radical innovation that that was originally maybe part of the int- intention of of a charter? I mean, I guess I'm not saying. For example, I'm not seeing any schools that are like, oh, let's pay our teachers a hundred thousand dollars, and and we're going to keep them there for forever because we pay them so well and we give them the freedom to to kind of teach and operate the way they want. You know, something like that. That doesn't exist. They were mostly have a pretty standardized sort of you know, salary structure and job expectations of, of teachers? There are some uh, boutique uh, standalone charter schools, um, some of which have been formed by uh, former teachers. Uh, but that certainly isn't what became the dominant form or the primary source for innovation in the system. Uh, you're right, the success of the charter school movement in Arizona has been driven principally uh, by uh, chains, by by charter systems that have multiple locations and uh, standard operating procedures for their schools. I do believe you have seen um, specialization and innovation uh, in within those chains, they all have kind of their own brand, their own identity, uh, and you you ha- do have niche schools um, pop up for kids that are interested right, in the right. arts or second chance schools for for dropouts, right, and, and right. so you you do have um, those programs. But um, I do believe that there has been innovation introduced. Um, not so much teacher-driven as um, educationally entrepreneurs uh, driving that innovation. I, I think that the failure to produce charter systems that pay uh, teachers high wages uh, in order to retain them, uh, I think is probably as much a function of funding as it is the failure of that idea to take root. Uh, That certainly was in some charter schools, that was their intent going in. Uh, They've uh, not gotten there, and I think it's in significant part because Arizona has relatively low funding overall, and charter schools get less money uh, than the district schools. Some of the big national charter systems have refused to come to Arizona uh, because the reimbursement rates are so low. Hmm. Yeah. The, <clears throat> so that just a few examples of of the of the chains, the different styles. I mean, you have great car, great hearts, which is a classical uh, curriculum. You have basis, which is like a high, um, like high performance AP test uh, sort of system. Um, you have Imagine schools, and you have some you know some offshoots like. You know, there's science and STEM academies. There's a, you know, the autism um, school. Um, So do you think, so in terms of the success of charter schools, I think 
charter, you know, charter advocates would point to, you know, things like Matt Ladner's research showing that uh, there has been academic gains and, and, and especially with low, lower income um, communities uh, compared to other, to other states. Are there other indicators of success or, or lack of success um, with, ha, I guess, has the, the experiment, the intention behind it, has it been a success story? It has exceeded my expectations. I, I never guessed that um, charter enrollment would constitute a fifth of all uh, public school enrollment uh, in the state. Uh, and the whole idea of a education marketplace in K-12 education is that ultimate success is your ability to attract students. And for several years now, um, charter school enrollment has been increasing in Arizona, while district school enrollment has been uh, flat. Um, so uh, one can debate the academic gains or um, what studies show about what students are learning in different types of schools. Um, but the ultimate truth test is where are parents choosing to send their kids? And in Arizona, um, they're choosing to send them um, increasingly uh, to charter schools. Now, I happen to think uh, Matt Ladner's uh, research is uh, extraordinarily uh, strong and important um, because it does show that uh, charter students in Arizona, taken as a whole, uh, score on the National Assessment of Education Progress Test, which is the test that's administered on a uniform basis by the federal government across all the states, um, performs near the top of any state, uh, and that our gains are near the top of, any, of every state. And that's true particularly among charter school students, but it's also true among our district school students. So I actually think that Arizona may be the first state that reached enough critical mass to test the theory uh, that uh, competition can lead to educational advancement. Um, and, and I think the evidence is that it has done that. But again, irrespective of that, if you go back to parental satisfaction, there's little question that the charters have been highly successful in Arizona. Just because of the foot, the, the vote with your feet, idea and one of the so one of the one of the criticisms of of charter schools is the that there's i mean one of the criticisms of charter schools is the draw of charter schools which is there's different laws and different regulations that charters uh, have to abide by versus uh, district schools they're um, they don't have to have uh, the same certifications for for teachers just just one example of 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 uh, how they can operate a little a little differently. I mean, they still do have to. I think that's one. Of, I think this is one of the reasons why um, maybe you're you're not seeing the same upward drive of teacher salaries is that you still have to abide by so many other regulations that you need. You know, you need administration and, and staff to sort of um, keep keep all the to, to abide by all the all the all the regulations that are the same, but. That's one of the biggest criticisms that you get from from Democrats and, and people that oppose charter schools is they say that <clears throat> um, 
it's not a fair playing field because they don't have to abide by the same laws. And there's all the other, I think the major criticism is that they are profiting that the, that the owners and the operators are profiting um, excessively from their, uh, from operating schools, whereas, you know, a truly public school would not be profit driven. What is the, what is your response to uh, those critiques that it doesn't have the same regulation, so it's not a fair playing field and that they're profiteering um, off of the, off of the public system? This is um, something which, regarding which the charter school industry uh, made a serious strategic mistake and have not um, fully recouped or recovered from it. The best way to think about charter schools and the right way to think about charter schools is that they are um, government contractors. Um, They receive a set, set amount of money. Uh, from um, the common pot, the common taxpayer pot from the government uh, in order to provide a service, a year's worth of, of education for the kids that choose to attend that school. Um, and so uh, they should be judged by the result, not the way they go about achieving uh, that result. And they should be judged principally by parents uh, regarding whether they decide to send their kids to that school or not. Uh, and uh, judging by results, as we've discussed, you got to say that it's been successful. Now, the public, the, the charter schools rejected to begin with um, identifying themselves in the contracting out model. As, How did they identify themselves? They were they were just they were public schools like the district schools, just different. And uh, and, and and when you concede that uh, that that they are a public school, not a private school performing a public service. Uh, providing a public service, um, then it is more difficult to say, well, um, why do these rules apply to these schools and these rules not apply to these other schools? Uh, and, uh, and, and, and then the question of what do the owners make become relevant, just like what does a principal in right. a district school make is a matter of public uh, interest. Um, so uh, I, I think that that we, the state legislature started to approach reforms based upon the uh, points of view that you articulated uh, that would have pretty much blown up uh, the charter systems that have been so successful uh, and. I think as a result of that, uh, the industry has become more comfortable with the contracting out model explaining what they do, which is uh, we are private institutions. We They're mostly nonprofit corporations, but they are corporations. Uh, and we provide a service, and you should judge us by the quality of that service and the results, uh, not uh, how we divide up our money or where we get our books from or who we hire to 
to run our schools um, because we're a private business uh, providing a public service. We're not really a public school in the same sense as the district schools. That does seem like a, a fundamental tension, doesn't it? Is that, what are they? You know, are they public schools that can just do things a little different, or are they um, private private operations? But there's no doubt that they're public in the way that you don't have to pay tuition to go there. Students do not have to pay tuition to go there, and they get paid by taxpayers because tax. You know, the, there's a complicated funding formula, but they, the charter schools do get paid by, by tax dollars. So, <clears throat> I mean, so I think, I think that, that creates a sort of expectation by the public, and maybe this is where Democrats are coming from, that, hey, these are, this is a public school. So shouldn't we, shouldn't we have, I think, what they were, I think some of the reforms they were talking about a couple years ago were something like, I don't know, um, there was some idea about having an independent board of directors. I know that you know district schools, you have elected board um, at charter schools. They can basically do whatever they want. But then there were some other regulations proposed that would make them. I forget exactly what the exact laws were, but well, we we proposed the, the proposed. Well, that's why the charter school industry made the mistake in not adopting the con- contractor model. Um, to explain themselves from the get-go. Um, we hire private construction companies to build roads. Um, no one thinks that the public should be able to decide from whom that contractor purchases his equipment or uh, who who gets paid what uh, within the company. Um, you uh, have... You have a public tender, and and you get a road. And and how the contractor goes about getting you the road is his business. He's judged by whether he got you the road. And uh, you know the government contracts for accounting services, for lawyer services, all sorts of services. Um, so if you view it that way, then you say, okay, the 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 question is, is the taxpayer getting a year's worth of education uh, for the money that uh, the government is paying the private contractor, the charter school. And uh, the answer in Arizona is overwhelmingly yes. Uh, it's getting uh, greater education attain- attainment at a lesser price because uh, in total, uh, charter schools receive less taxpayer money than uh, district schools. But it seems like that pub- in, the, in the public I, in a lot of people's minds, that public schools are a little bit different in what they are, what they're for. And I kind of like to, to extend this a little bit, um, you know, if you, if you get into the further reaches of, of school choice, which is things like vouchers and tax credits, which, you know, right now in Arizona, we do have vouchers. We have I mean, educational savings accounts where you can um, depending if you're a certain category, you can take, you can basically get a check from the government, you know, taxpayer money, and use it for a literally a private school. And 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 if you're a taxpayer, you can give money to private schools and get a discount, right? That's a tax credit. Get a discount on your on your taxes. And and um, so I think that's where kind of the issue comes from is that I think some people, lots of people see public schools as providing public education, which includes, 
some combination of, I don't know, vir- you know, public virtues or secular sort of values uh, that, that gets like the purpose of why we're teaching history and, and, and reading and writing is, you know, maybe to create formed, you know, citizens and, and, and people that, that live in our, in our society. Whereas once you start saying, um, okay, we're going to give taxpayer money to a private entity, or we're going to start even maybe giving taxpayer money to religious schools or Christian schools or any, any religion could start a private school and get voucher money for it. And even, you know, what <laughs> we, I'm not sure if you saw that like Turning Point USA was kind of like thinking of maybe starting a school, you know, so like what if you had a political activist sort of organization that started a private school and they were explicitly inculcating their students with this, whether a progressive worldview or a, or a conservative um, or even extremist worldview. It's private school, right? You can do that if you want to. So, so how do you then, <clears throat> I think for me, you know, this is where I kind of maybe start to see some, some maybe lines that are different than public schools and public charter schools is that, is it, you know, is it the same thing to send public dollars and, and to use that to, whether it was a, um, fully private charter school or whether it even opened up the, cause that could open up the category, right? If you saw it as private contractors, you're opening it up to like, okay, I'm a, I'm a Christian school and I'm privately contracted so I can get, I mean, if you if you fully extended the voucher, if you had universal backpack funding, that's what it that's what it would be. Don't you think that that maybe is a different thing than public charter schools taking taxpayer money and letting it go to, or even equalizing the funding and letting anyone send their kid to a Christian school or a private school with no regulation, no oversight, and and letting them use tax money, public money for that sort of schooling. It, it is different. I mean, charter schools have to get a um, government license. Um, there, there is a regulatory scheme to get approved before you can get any um, public public money. Um, so uh, vouchers are different uh, in that you are uh, you're, you're not going to be able, particularly for religious schools, and most of our private schools are religious schools in the state. Um, you're not, not going to get in the business of chartering or, or having some kind of government licensing uh, for them. Uh, that's going to be too much of a of, of government oversight of religion. Um, I don't think that the dangers are large, however, uh, compared to the social equity involved. Um, uh, everybody contributes to the common pot uh, uh, that we use to educate kids. And if a Catholic parent uh, wants um, Catholic religious instruction in addition to uh, the uh, academic courses, um, I think it is simply unfair uh, to say, because you want to make that choice, we're going to deny you any portion of the common pot. 
Uh, and in reality, these schools have to be subsidized. We don't, we don't give enough in a voucher to actually run uh, a um, school enterprise uh, completely. I mean, most of these religious schools have discounted rent. Uh, they have scholarships that are funded by uh, the sponsoring uh, institution. They have charitable fundraising that they do. Um, and so you're just partially offsetting the cost of providing the education or the cost of sending your kid uh, to a uh, religious school if you want to have um, both uh, academic and religious instruction. I do believe that it would be reasonable if there were a full-fledged voucher system, and, and, and I'm against the tax credits. I I prefer that it be done on a uh, voucher system. And if, and if we expand vouchers, we ought to cut back on the tax credits. Um, but uh, I think it would be reasonable to require schools, uh, voucher students, uh, to take the same standardized tests as those who take, uh, uh, those who attend district or uh, charter schools. Um, and that would inform, it, it would first of all sort of guide against the, they're going to take this money and not really give the kids good education without having to go through the licensure requirement. Uh, and in a school choice environment where you're depending upon parents to make uh, the choices on behalf of their uh, children, it provides comparable data. Uh, is this religious school that I think I want to send my kids uh, doing as good as good of a job as the charter school down the street or the district school uh, down the other street. So yes, it is different. Uh, I would agree that the argument is more difficult, uh, but I think ultimately social equity um, argues in favor of not a full-fledged voucher, not being able to take all the money that you would otherwise would otherwise be spent on the student in the public school system. So you are always making taxpayers better off um, and with some degree of accountability in terms of uh, equalized uh, testing. Um, I still think that that's the superior argument. Well, how is that different? I know that conservatives are really strongly against something like public funding for campaigns, right? Like political campaigns uh, that that they don't want to have public dollars going to support a certain cause that you might not believe in, specifically a you know political campaign. Is there? I mean, is there any other analogies for for public money going towards you know kind of explicitly? I there's, mean, I mean, there's, there's all sorts religious... of social of of public social welfare programs um, uh, for which religious institutions are. Like charities uh, are, and stuff are, getting getting like religious charities getting taxpayer money or like oh, oh yeah yeah and and an awful lot <laughs> of our social welfare work is done through religious organizations um, using taxpayer money um, and, and and the difference between the, the funding something new like like candidate campaigns although we do publicly fund candidate campaigns in Arizona. Um, uh, is that we've already decided uh, that educating children uh, is something that we're going to do collectively. We're, we're going to have a common pot, 
Uh, and to me, the equity question is, why should someone who wants to send their child um, to a religious school and receive religious instruction as well as academic instruction be denied any portion of uh, the common collective uh, pot for what we believe is a public function, which is the education of children? Yeah, to me, I mean, I'm, I'm not full. My, my thoughts aren't completely firm on this, but it just strikes me as, okay, it's, it, it would make sense to have, okay, you have a common pot of money for public schools. And that, and that, their public, you know, oversight, and there's, there's, you know, even charter schools, there are certain types of classes that are required that we've all sort of the democratic process decides those, you know, versus, <clears throat> okay, yeah, you can, like, there's nothing stopping a bunch of people from raising money for vouchers, private school scholarships and vouchers, but to. To, it seems to me that there maybe is a different line that's like, let's take some of the common pot money and give that to for a religious instruction that I might not believe in. I might be firmly opposed to this kind of religious or even political. I mean, if there if you had, you know, a political politically motivated school, um, what's in, in in reality, I mean, we, we, we can talk about what might come about, but in reality, the vouchers aren't sufficient in general to pay for the academic instruction. The religious institution is also subsidizing the academic instruction. Um, so if you had the voucher large enough that... that um, religious institutions could uh, pay for the academic instruction and have money left over, yeah. then you might have an argument that you're subsidizing the religious instruction. But in reality, these institutions are subsidizing the academic instruction. And, and there would be a good argument to make the voucher at such a point that you ensure that that's the case, that, that there has to be additional sacrifice from the parents and the institutions um, and all you're doing is sort of reducing uh, the cost or the burden uh, to the parents that want their kids to have a combo. Yeah, I guess that would make, to me it would make more sense to allow that if you were, um, if, if they were, if they were taking the same standardized tests because, because that's like, okay, are you, I mean, I, I totally, I think our current standardized testing system is totally dysfunctional and, and, and backwards and should be reformed. So I don't, I don't really support using, using our standardized testing system to say anything or determine any policy right now. But if it was a better system, if it was a better testing system that actually tested like what's supposed to be taught in public schools, then I could, then I would be more open to saying, oh, okay. Then, 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 then you're showing me. Yes, you're, you know, a, a religious school or, or whatever type of school. But you have, you are showing that, hey, we are. This is what we are. I, I perform. This is what we are. Look, and, we're teaching this because look, look, look at what the the, the results the, are. For for the most part, the private schools <clears throat> oppose that, restrict that, and fight against it. I think it's reasonable. I. I, I think that's a reasonable expectation. If you are going to have public money, 
going to help pay for uh, the academic instruction, um, that there be some form of accountability for that academic instruction. And last point, last question here is the future. What's the future of school choice legislation? Is um, I know you've sort of kind of pushed for a equalization of, of funding, but that would be a very complicated, long process to um, to make that to make that a reality. You know, in the meantime, you know, we're a very unpredictable political situation. And we could see, I mean, you don't know, but we could see Democrat governor and a Democratic majority legislature in, in a year from now. So, <clears throat> I mean, what what do you think is the future? I mean, have have has school choice proven itself enough that will it will last even with the Democrat if if there was a Democrats in power in Arizona um, is there any possibility for the um, you know equalization idea that might that might level the playing field in your mind for um, for school, school choice I believe that um, the legislation that you referred to previously that would have um, dramatically reformed the way charter schools uh, can operate and uh, blow up our most successful charter school uh, systems. Uh, made awake uh, the charter uh, school industry. And I think they're uh, much more attuned to the need to uh, be active politically uh, and be uh, able to activate their parents and students politically. And I think it's reached a sufficient size that even if, if people who opposed uh, charters in principle took over, uh, that um, it would be very, very difficult to make any substantial reforms that would damage the charter school system as it exists. There is a tremendous opportunity in terms of going forward in the future um, to create win-win-win scenarios. Uh, if you're going to equalize funding, you are first going to have to dramatically increase funding. You can't, you will not politically be able to get uh, any kind of education reform uh, passed that creates large numbers of losers. So if you just try to resolve the difference between charter schools and district schools within existing resources, you're going to have lots of politically powerful district schools. Uh, they'll be able to inflame their parents, and it's just not going to happen. So the only way you can get equalization is to in dramatically increase education funding. Um, so you make virtually everybody a winner. Uh, and then if you've done that, I think you can talk about equalizing uh, what exists and having true uh, backpack uh, funding. Um, the opportunity is that the state has the resources to do that. Yeah. Uh, and that hasn't been true for a very, very long period of time. Now, unfortunately, um, I don't see coming together uh, the 
political will uh, to make that happen. Um, but the opportunity is just staring the state right in the face. Uh, and uh, it is complicated how, how, how you would go the transition between what we've got to true state, fully state, backpack funding uh, is terribly complicated and difficult. And a, a lot of really uh, bright people need to be working on that. Yeah. That's not happening. Um, but um, I'm, I'm <laughs> very uh, uh, astonished and frustrated at uh, the tremendous opportunity that's before the state uh, that none of our political leadership seems to be inclined or have the wit to pick up and, and run with. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> let's leave it there. Hope everybody uh, enjoyed the sort of an overview of the history and, and philosophy of, um, of school choice, maybe someday. Um, some of these win-win opportunities will, will align politically. Um, we'll see. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. You can uh, subscribe to the podcast on um, Apple Podcasts, uh, Overcast, Spotify, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Thank you.